1: We want to break down a little bit more uh, the merger with the GE unit, the oil unit, and Baker Hughes. And here we have with us uh, Rick Clough, industrials reporter for for Bloomberg. Um, I want to talk about just the mechanics of this, because I know that we kind of got an explanation earlier, but I really haven't wrapped my head around the entity that they're creating and what that's going to give them going forward.
2: You know, I think we're all still uh, kind of trying to figure this out. Thank God, because
1: uh, <laughs> I didn't get it at all. <laughs> it, she it, was worried.
2: Yeah, it'll be she a, a new publicly traded company. Um, it'll be 62.5% owned by GE. And and the way that they're characterizing it is uh, it will be the new Baker Hughes. They've also called it Baker Hughes, a GE company. So um, in a sense, it's uh, it's a subsidiary, but uh, will um, function as, as a standalone company. And it, it really combines um, – the operations um ge's oil and gas business along with baker hughes and and creates a, a, a bigger player in in the oil market and one with a, a real broad range of, of product and, and service offerings
0: hey brick can you explain who is going to own that piece of Baker Hughes, and why wouldn't they just sell the whole thing to GE if GE is going to be an over sixty percent owner?
2: You know, I I can't entirely explain it, but uh, but you know, I think part of it had to do with uh, GE's appetite here too. Um, you know, they they I think were reluctant to do a a full acquisition. They they said recently that that was never on the table, and um, you know, for them they while they could do a really big deal, um, I think. They're they're trying to be really disciplined with M and A, uh, and you know they've got uh, an activist shareholder in, in Nelson Peltz's uh, Tryon Fund Fund Management in there, um, so in you know that helps keep them disciplined. But uh, but you know Jeff Immelt earlier in his uh, his tenure as CEO of of GE um, took some criticism for um, some of the, the lack of discipline that some investors saw with uh, with uh, their M and A strategy, and so um, you know I think lately they've been trying to uh, just be a, a little better about that.
1: I mean, GE sort of has had an identity issue for a while, right? And it's trying to rebrand itself as uh, the future and more of a tech company. I mean, how does this allow
2: them to do that, or does this factor in to sort of that strategy? Absolutely, they're they're trying very hard to rebrand themselves, and and to their credit, there really does seem to be some substance behind this. Um, they want to become the the digital industrial company, as they um, describe it, and uh, and that's been a transformation that's been underway for a, a number of years now. They've been um uh, on the one hand really focusing on um, building heavy duty industrial equipment uh you know getting rid of some um, uh, finance businesses and and consumer focused ones and uh, focusing on things like uh like jet engines and gas turbines and then at the same time they've been building a uh, a software business and uh that's really to enhance the um the equipment that they sell putting sensors and that kind of thing on it and uh, helping improve uh, productivity and efficiency and so this really fits into that. I just want to note that tri uh, uh, Tryan Fund
0: Management, which is the Nelson Peltz investment in the vehicle, uh, has over 74.5 million shares of uh, GE, and that equals
2: about an eight-tenths of a percent stake in the company. And that's a pretty big stake uh, uh, when you're talking about a, a company as big as GE. And yeah, actually, number, number eleven. I mean, yeah. you know, on the on the Bloomberg HDS. There you go. And we actually just uh, reached out to them um, just before I, I walked in here, and and they are on board with this this move. They they support it, and they said they applaud. Uh, GE's, is that uh,
0: because the Baker Hughes that will then trade or the new company that will then trade acts almost like a, a, a stub or a proxy for the old Baker Hughes because they thought maybe they could actually get more if the market wasn't so terrible?
2: You know, that could be part of it. And uh, and really, I think, too, this is this is a way for GE to uh, play a possible rebound in the market without having to do a full acquisition and, and put all that cash on the line. What does this do for Baker Hughes? You know, for Baker Hughes, this, this allows them – much like GE, it allows them to to broaden their product offerings. They the way that this is is really being um, described is, is a way for them to um, take advantage of GE's uh, growing software business. To um, they've got uh, what they call Predix, their operating system that they're trying to roll out across all kinds of different uh, machines. But uh, um, but that's something that they really want to incorporate into um, the the products and the service offerings, and so that'll allow them to really compete on on a, on a more level footing with uh, companies like uh, Halliburton and Schlumberger.
0: GE is going to contribute $7.4 billion to fund a special dividend. That'll go to the Baker Hughes stockholders. That dividend is worth $17.5 a share. Uh, What happens to the GE shareholder? Do we know?
2: uh you know I, I don't know if all the uh all of that has been announced yet but uh um it, you know if it's any indication that the stocks stock was up a bit uh um this morning um i think it's share up about will, four tenths of a percent right now and you know for ge that that's not bad right. uh, uh, even a one percent uh, change is uh, pretty unusual well
1: i i should just point out that ge shares have are down about almost four percent on the year whereas Baker Hughes shares thank you to the round in oil prices. They're up more than 27%. So they're dipping a little bit. GE is, uh, is showing a notable jump.
2: Yeah. And, and actually, with GE shares, uh, a lot of the decline has come in the, the last uh, quarter or so. I
0: want to thank you very much. Rick Clough, Industrials reporter for Bloomberg News. I'm Kim Fox, along with Lisa Abramowitz. This is Bloomberg. Another day, another group of deals for Alex Sherman, our technology, media, and telecom mergers and acquisitions reporter for Bloomberg News. And Alex can be followed on Twitter at Sherman4949. Look All at right, the bags
1: under his eyes. Yeah. You know, the, the result of many, many big deals. Well, he hasn't
3: right. Or a having a fees. three-year-old and a seven-month-old. All right, fine. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, that too. All right, so Sherman4949. Um, let's start with level three. And CenturyLink, that's the go there first.
3: Yeah, sure. So this is a, it's a big deal. These are big companies. Um, CenturyLink is buying slash merging with Level Three. It's a cash stock deal. Uh, the total value of this, if you include debt, is about thirty four billion dollars. So this is yet another large deal in the telecom industry. What I think is interesting about this one, Pim, is that it comes. Uh, On the heels of the two biggest players in the world of telecommunications, uh, at least sort of the the world of, let's say, telephonic telecommunications, meaning AT&T and Verizon. They both did notable deals this year, Verizon buying Yahoo, AT&T just recently buying Time Warner, and now CenturyLink in level three. Not going in the same direction there of buying sort of the flashy consumer facing media business. Instead, this is very much sort of a boring, routine, business-to-business, business to business, business services type deal. Where these two companies are going to combine, and basically what it allows them to do is sell their products that they sell to other businesses, whether they're sort of security products or uh, you know almost like internet infrastructure type products uh, to each other. So it makes their customer bases much larger. And really, this deal is all about taxes. Each company comes with enormous net operating losses. CenturyLink about six billion in net operating losses. Level Three Communications about ten billion in net operating losses. Why do they have so many NOLs. Well, if you've been following Donald Trump, you might know this. Uh, if, if you do bad business, you get NOLs. They laid a lot of fiber uh, many years ago. They lost a lot of money on it. But the benefit, of course, is that you get tax benefits. So shareholders for both of these companies should be happy today, uh, to some degree at least, in that they get to put their NOLs to use with this merger
1: man, you really get my heart pumping, you know, with the boring business deal and all about taxes. I'm just, you know, over here uh, hyperventilating. I will say there was a story uh, in the New York Post that I thought was really compelling about different companies, but, but you know, has to do with a merger, so we're going to throw it at you. Uh, the story is saying that Goldman Sachs is trying to persuade Apple to come in and make a rival bid for Time Warner. Now we're talking. Yeah, now, yeah, now we're now not talking not boring, boring business deals. Exactly. So, you know, as we recall, at and has a bid, uh, an $85 billion agreement already, to acquire Time Warner. Okay, first of all, do you believe this story? And second of all, uh, why would they, like, what, why?
3: So I love this story because, I mean, this story is like writing uh, Dog Bites Man. Like, yes, <laughs> Goldman Sachs is pitching Apple. Goldman Sachs missed out on the deal. This it, is a little inside baseball, I suppose, for people that don't follow this. Uh, very closely, meaning the world of deals, but Goldman Sachs was not an advisor on the AT&T Time Warner deal, the biggest deal of the year. So that is bad news for Goldman Sachs. So they're trying to figure out, is there any possible way we can interrupt this deal? Because if they convince Apple to make a bid for Time Warner, that means they get paid. That's how Goldman does business. So yes, I'm sure they're pitching Apple to buy Time Warner. They're probably also pitching Apple to buy Disney. They're probably also pitching Apple to buy Netflix. They want Apple to buy something because they are very close to Apple. So I don't know exactly what the news value of this story is. We do not know that Apple is actually making a bid for Time Warner. They have long shied away from buying content. I can tell you that the advisors and people at Time Warner do not expect Apple to bid for Time Warner. Uh, So as far as we can tell, Uh, you know, don't get your hopes up on this one.
1: I I absolutely love the quote in this story. They are freaking out trying to convince Apple to come in. Well, Alex, once you, once you frame it the way you just did, I can understand why, because they are freaking out about their bonuses and justifying why they did not get this. And
3: look, this has been a little bit of a rocky run for Goldman Sachs. They weren't on the CenturyLink Level 3 deal either, which is another big deal uh, in sort of that broader world. They were, however, on Qualcomm NXP, which was announced last week, which was a $47 billion deal. So in, 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 In my world of tech, media, telecom, call it one for three for Goldman, which to their standards uh, is definitely uh, not up to their standards.
0: Wow, I, that was I a lot of information right there. I was just getting on the uh, CenturyLink uh, level three. When you, you was wait, wait. Or...
1: You wanted to go to the boring business story I, well, and the no, merger I, and and taxes. I, you know, right, I just okay. wanted.
0: I looked at how much debt both companies have, and uh, you know, I'm looking at this deal. And as Alex says, you know, combining two businesses that have a lot, uh, 16 billion in tax loss carry forwards. Correct. Correct. That's, yeah. And you're talking about uh, CenturyLink is about an $18 billion a year company,
3: level three. Excluding debt, right.
0: Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And uh, level three is uh, about an $8 billion company. Just wanted to get the perspective here. That's a lot of debt. Well, we'll see what happens.
3: Exactly. Ton of debt. And, and look, it's not that uncommon for a lot of these sort of legacy telecom companies to have a lot of debt. As I mentioned, they, they laid a lot of fiber down earlier on, and that costs a lot of money.
1: Alex Sherman, it is always a pleasure when you join us. Thank you so much. Alex Sherman, our crack ace, fabulous deals, mergers reporter. Thank you for joining us. Should Janet Yellen keep her job after a new president is elected. Perhaps some people say yes, but our guest, Brendan Brown, who's the chief economist and head of economic research at Mitsubishi UFJ Securities, doesn't think that she will retain her job. He is here to explain why. Thank you for being with us.
4: Well, a lot's going to turn on how the bubble in asset markets go. Whoever's president um, in January next year will be inheriting. Uh, a bubble across a whole range of asset markets for the first time since Herbert Hoover in um, 1929 coming into power, inheriting the big asset price inflation from the previous administration. Now, the likelihood is this asset price inflation um, goes into its final stage of deflation at some point, who can tell, in the next year or two. And I think that's when the key political choices have to be made. Does... The next administration then just do the same as the last time, reinflating, negative interest rates, cre- uh, trying to create another big asset price inflation. Or do they take their copybook from what happened with P- Paul Volcker being brought into the Fed in 1978
1: by, Car- by Carter? Okay, just going back a little bit. I mean, you said that there's been um, a bubble in assets and a lot of people would agree with you. When you say that, what are you referring to and what are you looking at and how much does it have to deflate?
4: What I'm talking about when I speak about asset price inflation is an empowerment...
1: Not not asset price inflation. Or bubbles. Bubbles. Okay.
4: Is an empowerment of irrational forces by an extreme form of monetary experimentation, such as we've had in the last few years. That empowerment of irrational forces, whether it comes under the so-called hunt for yield, income famine, a lot of speculative storytelling... Um, huge carry trades in in a whole range of assets, whether from into credit or into currencies or into illiquid assets. I think we can see that across a a whole span of uh, asset markets at this point.
0: Uh, Brendan Brown, I, I just want to give people a little bit of your background because uh, it is um, extensive. You've written uh, about uh, currency and credit as well as bubbles. Uh, I believe uh, the euro crash, the implications of monetary failure in Europe, that's also uh, uh, you're, you're author of. And you've got monetary chaos in Europe, 1914 to 1931. Uh do you think that we're repeating patterns? Is this rhyming with anything that you've studied in the past?
4: I would, co- I would combine two statements here. In financial history, there's nothing new under the sun, but also the sample size of history is very small. So yes, I can point to similar situations in, in the past, but the sample size is small, so I would never make a prediction of the past repeating itself. But we can learn from the past. And there are lots of episodes of asset price inflation. And what I would say with all of these is that the deflation goes through a mid-late phase and then a final phase. In the mid-late phase, what you get is froth continues to build up in some markets, whilst at the same time it's drained away from others. And the central bank tries to keep things going by making a new injection. And I think that's the stage we're at. So we've had the implosion of the oil energy um, asset bubble. We've had an implosion of some of the emerging market currencies. The Fed at the beginning of this year took out the Yell input, took took out a second Yell input at the time of the EU Brexit. So it's... It's had the luck of Napoleon's, that Napoleon looked for in his generals. It's managed to keep the asset price inflation going in a key election year and hope, hopefully, from their point of view, would get Hillary Clinton re-elected. But that luck, from what we can see in history, is, is not going to continue forever. Well,
1: so what asset specifically do you think is the most inflated and the most ripe for a precipitous fall at this point?
4: Well, clearly, we've had a lot of the carry trade into long government bonds, that, that is uh, uh, where we've seen a lot of this um, search or hunt for yield. We've had it into the investment-grade corporate bond market, um, including a lot of emerging market paper. Um, and we, we've had it into some areas of real estate, whether it's commercial real estate and in some hot hotspots around the world. But,
1: but what triggers... The the decline, the precipitous decline, not this 3% loss on global bonds in in October.
4: So what triggers a precipitous decline? It could be a credit event. Um, It could be some surprise slowdown in um, economic activity. Um, And it could be the unwinding of the government bond um, bubble in itself with uh, more and more speculation that there's going to be a very significant rise in rates. Um, and then you can look at the exogenous factors and the chance factors. It's, 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 a, whole, it's, a, whole, it's a whole range of possibilities. You know, if I, if I was just to take one example, and it's a, it's a long way back in history, um, but it's a very similar monetary experiment to today, with the 34 to 36 period under Roosevelt, with a big monetary expansion similar monetary base, interest rates stuck at zero, long term interest rate manipulation, very strong asset markets. And then suddenly, from summer 37 to autumn, you get a precipitous 35% fall in the market and the onset of a recession, which is even more severe than 2019 1930. So there, there is a precedent for that.
0: There's also a precedent for what comes after that which is why i asked you at the very beginning do you see or hear rather rhymes to history as to global conflicts and what people can do to protect themselves.
4: I think by, the biggest question I have about all of this is the politics. Central bankers essentially are put there by the politicians to run a particular policy, which is to, to their liking. We now have the Obama Fed essentially with everyone appointed by Obama running a particular monetary philosophy. The question is when, the, when this experiment is seen to fail, and it, I know there's a lot of central bankers around who say the policy's been successful, but really I think it's a joke to say the policy's been successful when we haven't even seen the, the end of one business cycle to know how it all ends up and whether the lower-income people suffer a, eventually a huge erosion in their pensions. You know, all these people saying that the, the lower-income people have gained because they're employed for leaving out us altogether what their pensions are going to be. But th- the, there will be a, a big political choice when this experiment fails as to what comes next. The best outcome would be if there's a Carter there who brings in a new head of the Fed um, who would follow an, a return to a sound money policy. But I don't know whether, but the alternative would be somebody coming in who just wants, an, who, appointing somebody who just intensify the present. I
0: want to thank you very much for putting this into perspective for us. Brendan Brown is Executive Director, Chief Economist, MUFG Securities. This is Bloomberg. Let's solve the issue of understanding passive versus active investment strategies. Mark Levine joins us. He is the chairman of the Illinois State Board of Investment, and he joins us from the windy city of Chicago. Mark, thank you very much for being with us.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: Just tell us a little bit about the Illinois State Board of Investment, how big it is, your role in it, and how many people are recipients of your work, and just give us some context.
5: Sure, of course. Um <clears throat> Uh, we are um, we're one of the three. Uh, we manage money for one of the three, sort of the big three, um, Illinois state pension funds. So there's a pension fund for teachers, Illinois teachers. There's a pension fund for state university workers. We don't manage that money. Um, that's uh, and those those are thirty five and uh, roughly sixteen seventeen billion dollars in assets. Those two funds. Our fund. We, we manage um, assets for the state employees. The legislators and the judges, and um, uh, and our assets in our defined benefit pension plan are sixteen billion dollars. There's hundred and twenty thousand um, uh, both uh, retired and current workers who are beneficiaries of our pension. Uh, we also, um, and this actually got got some press more recently, um, we also manage a four billion dollar. Uh, deferred comp plan, which is really you know quite similar to a 401k, um, which you, you know your your listeners would be more right. uh, familiar with. Um, right. So, and there's about four uh, four billion dollars of assets in that, and we've got um, about fifty. I believe the number is fifty two thousand of our hundred twenty thousand of the 120,000 beneficiaries of our pension system 52,000 of them participate in our uh, DC plan.
1: Okay, well let's let's get right into this. I am so glad you're here Mark Levine. Let me tell you I think that it is so interesting what you did. You voted on September 15th to convert the 401k type of plan to an all index fund uh, lineup. So in other words, that's the $4 billion 401k style plan. This is a big shift, especially at a time when a lot of people say, you know, yeah, maybe active management has underperformed, but going forward, they could potentially outperform, uh, given if there is a rising rate situation or given how crowded some of the bets have gotten. So, so justify it. Why do you think uh, passive is the way to go going forward?
5: Uh, sure, sure. Um, what, um, you know, we went, we, we, we were not, we were far from the most complicated, sort of worst run, um, DC plan, uh, going in. Okay. We had a, uh, we had about, I believe it was, uh, 17, 17, or 18 choices for the participants. And, um, but let me tell you what, that's a lot of complexity right there. And our view, look, we have one goal at the Illinois State Board of Investment and that's investment excellence. Okay. Our view is that complexity is an obstacle to excellence. And so everything we do, whether it's in that D- the D.C. plan that you just asked about or our pension plan, we're, we're always striving to simplify. We're always striving to simplify. Now it's particularly true on the D.C. side where, um, where participants get to pick and choose what they invest in, right, and so there's a lot of risk there. You have so many choices that um they're going to particularly like chase returns, you know whoever performed best last year there's always you know a tendency to revert to the mean of course with active management, so you know we kind of decided let's let's really take all of the complexity out or or as much as we possibly can. And so we took out active management. Um now it's also true that the active managers that we had there were, weren't adding value. I mean they were you know charging fees and underperforming benchmarks over you know sort of lengthy time periods. Uh, can or, you tell us who price. they
1: were? Which ones?
5: Uh I mean, I can I, uh, yeah we had uh, T Rowe Price was was the largest they actually managed a um uh, a life cycle um, option for, for our participants, um, Fidelity, Manage a Balance Index Fund. Um, and uh, so it was uh, names like that, William Blair, um, uh, Invesco, so, uh, and and a few others.
1: But so in other words, this wasn't this wasn't like the hedge fund complex and the fees weren't that crazily high. This, so is it, is it more about right. uh, simplifying the portfolio and less about the fees or is it sort of equal –
5: yeah and, and you, you you might be aware that uh, about 7 8 months ago we took a hatchet to our um, to our hedge fund portfolio on the uh, pension side. No it, 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 you're you're exactly right. I mean the, you know the the 2% of assets and 20% of of all returns uh compensation model of the hedge funds, um, fortunately, hasn't come anywhere near the DC side, and I believe that's really pretty much across the industry. Um, So these were more modest fees, but the problem was, you know, look, the fees, you know, know, in a zero interest rate environment, there are, you know, we can't expect, you know, massive returns out of equities, right? So, um, right, so 7,500 basis points of fees, is quite material, but that wasn't the driving force. The driving force was to make the, the lives of our participants easier by giving fewer choices is actually better than more choices.
0: Mark, having said that, I'm wondering if you could give us a glimpse of what it was like to go through the process of simplifying your investment strategy as you've done.
5: Okay. Um, so initially, there you know, I 'll actually, if you don 't mind, sort of um, shift over just for a sec to the, Go for uh, it. Pe- to the to the pension side. initially, look, pension funds are political animals, right The, the trustees that, that govern pension funds tend to be you know elected by unions or uh, state office wide holders, um, governor appointments, which is actually how I, how, you know, how I got on the board. So there is a political element to it and when we and we our board had a lot of turnover last year. So when we when, and I was elected chairman in September and the first thing that I did once I was elected chairman was start to to try to simplify the portfolio by you know by removing or you know by sort of you know asking staff to 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 look at removing um our active managers that weren't adding value okay so now the guys who let's say were on the board before i got there they you know kind of looked askance at what we were doing it's like you know are you just did they did they
0: give you 10 seconds because that's all i'm going to give you sorry you got 10 seconds to wrap it
5: (laughs) okay yeah okay okay sorry so it's sort of the, this view of, you know, replacing our guys with your guys. And once they saw what we, we were really bringing in passive managers, and so we, we weren't bringing in, there was no our guys. There was just good, basic kind of management where we get market returns. There aren't investment managers It's really better for anyone. The hostility level really went down.
0: Mark Levine, thank you very much. Chairman, Illinois State Board of Investment, this is Bloomberg